Father in heaven, as we sing our belief, we hold on to it. Lord, at times that, that belief will get tested. It will get tried. We know that. And the enemy will try to shake it out of us. But when we hold on to all the facets that we were just singing about, it's rock solid. You are rock solid. And Lord, it is our desire to be the same and for our faith to be the same. So I know that today there are people that are, are questioning theirs. Some things have happened in their life that are difficult to deal with, hard to understand, and almost impossible to wrap their arms around or their head around. But I pray, Father, that You'll help them wrap their heart around those things and to see where You're at in the midst of them. Lord, what we're talking about today is very real. It is very practical. It touches every one of us at some point. So would You make us all listeners? But more than that, would You make us all believers? In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to show you a quote in just a minute from an old preacher named John Wesley. Wesley preached back at the end of the 1700s. And when he was preaching, standing in the pulpit, he was bringing a message that was not necessarily popular. Not at all. In fact, during that exact same time, there were some other preachers that were preaching a message that seemed to be exactly the opposite of what Wesley was preaching. Some of the messages that were being offered said that when a person came to know Christ, they came because God called them, and that was it. And when people rejected Christ, it's because they were predestined to do so. Wesley brought a different message. He brought a message of personal responsibility in relationship to the Lord. He brought a message that said, yes, the Lord knows those that will respond. He knows how they will respond, but it is still necessary for every person to respond. And then he took it up a whole other notch when he started to preach that we could have a personal relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. There were other people that were preaching during that day that were appalled by that message, a personal relationship with God. How dare Wesley say something like that? Well, Wesley could say it because he believed it's what the Bible taught. And that's the quote that I want you to see this morning. This is good. I mean, really good. Take a look. I am a creature of a day. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God Himself has condescended to teach me that way. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. That just gives me goosebumps. It really does. At any price, give me the book of God. Wesley held on to his Bible and he called it the authority by which he preached. And it was the only authority that he needed. So when everybody was taking cheap shots at him, saying that he was bringing heresy from the pulpit, Wesley never blinked. He never blinked. He was not only the father of the Methodist movement, but also of the Wesleyan movement. Today, a lot of the things that he taught have shaped modern evangelicalism. He had a powerful message because he believed it came from the Bible. And that was the only authority that he needed. Now I want to fast forward about 225 years 
and show you something very similar that another preacher said. This one has actually been here. His name is Bob Russell. Bob led Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky for 40 years before he retired just a a few years ago. Bob was part of the leadership team that grew that church to over 20,000 in attendance every weekend. When Southeast Christian Church grew the way it did, it became the father of the modern church growth movement. And it was built standing on the authority of the Word of God. When Bob preaches, he preaches with a Bible in his hands. And he preaches the authority of the Bible. That's why he could say things like this. Take a look. Recently, I've been compiling a list of biblical truths that I am determined to stand for regardless of the consequences. These principles from the foundation of my faith are my doctrinal non-negotiables. Since the world loves darkness rather than light, I understand these biblical truths inevitably anger those who don't know Christ. Now, Bob's an incredibly loving man. And from the pulpit, he is an incredibly loving preacher. That's part of the reason the church grew the way it did, was the heart of the man in the pulpit. But more than that, it was the authority by which he preached. He preached the Bible. He wrote these words in one of his blogs about 18 months ago, a number of years after he retired, 10 years, I believe, after he retired. But he is still actively presenting the gospel, actively presenting the Word of God, and these are his non-negotiables. There's 14 of them. I want you to see them. Here they are. Number one, God created the world, and we are ultimately accountable to Him as the ruler and sustainer of His universe. Number two, Every person has value to God, and every human life is to be treated with dignity and compassion from conception to natural death. Marriage between a man and a woman is the foundation of the family and the basic building block of society. Sexual intimacy is a sacred gift from God and is a privilege to be reserved for marriage only. Number five, Satan is the ultimate source of evil in the world and the arch enemy of all that is good. Number six, we have each inherited a carnal nature from Adam, and consequently we have all disobeyed God and are hopelessly trapped in sin and in desperate need of redemption. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, and He provides the only way to salvation through faith in His atoning death and bodily resurrection. Number eight, the Bible is the inspired Word of God, the primary means by which we come to know Christ who is the absolute standard of right and wrong. We place our trust in Christ by repenting of our sin, publicly professing our faith, and being baptized into Him. Number 10. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer to convict of sin, comfort us in sorrow, empower us to overcome temptation, embolden our witness, and guide us in following God's will. The church is the body of Christ on earth, and is a divine source of fellowship, edification, and service. Number 12, Jesus Christ will one day return to earth, and then every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. Those who have trusted Christ will reign with Him forever in heaven. Those who have rejected Him will be punished for their sins in hell. And number 14, the primary purpose of life is to glorify God by living in obedience to His commands. 14 non-negotiables from Bob Russell, following some of the things that John Wesley said as well. They come right from the Bible. Oh, give me at any price 
Give me the book of God because it contains for us what we need for life and godliness. If we will read it as the inspired word of God, the Bible has the ability to change our lives because it directs us to Jesus. Every time it directs us to Jesus. Now I say all of that to say this. As much as we stand on the authority of the Word of God and as much as we may long for the teaching of the Bible, there are portions of it that we would like to step around. There are portions of the Bible that we would like to cut out and throw away because the teaching is so hard. It is so difficult for us that we do not want to accept it. At any price, we do not want to accept it. I want to show you one of those teachings this morning. It's found in the book of James. Turn with me to the first chapter, will you? James chapter 1. Starting in verse 2. This is tough teaching. At its heart, it is tough teaching. And when we experience what's being taught here, it is difficult to accept. You'll see why in just a minute. James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Skip over to verse 12 with me. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love Him. See why that's so hard? See that why that is so difficult? Because we want to believe, as people are teaching on a regular basis today, that when we come to know God through a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ, all trials will cease. Life is going to be nothing but smooth sailing. The Lord's going to give us everything that we want. Some people would be audacious enough to say that we can experience our best life now because of Jesus. And everything is going to be completely wonderful. But that is not what the Bible says. That is not what the Bible says. In fact, pay close attention again to how James says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There's going to be all kinds of trials coming your way. Even in Christ, there are going to be all kinds of trials coming your way. That's why people want to sidestep this passage. We don't want to think that way. We don't want to believe that way. But if we are going to stand on the authority of God's Word, if we are going to believe what is written here, and if we're going to allow this to transform us, then we must, listen, we must embrace the fact that difficult times will come. And when they come, we can be prepared for them because we have embraced the teaching. Ignore it. They'll take you by surprise. Sidestep it, and you may actually find yourself running away from God rather than running to Him. So I want us to spend the remainder of our time this morning exploring what James is saying. But we're going to look at a whole lot of other Scriptures that undergird that and help prepare us for those trials. As we get started, you have to know this. Trials in your life are there for a good reason. They're not there for bad reasons. Trials that come your way are designed to draw you near to the Lord. 
not push you away. So embrace the fact that God-given trials are there for us for a good reason, not a bad one. And once you have that understanding in place, everything else that you build on top of it will just strengthen your faith. But first, we've got to look at the foundation. You have to know that James is not the only one that teaches things like this. In fact, Jesus himself would help us understand this concept. Go with me to the Gospel of John, would you? Keep your finger there in James 1, but turn to John chapter 16. Verse 33. These are words that Jesus said to the disciples, but they apply to every believer in Christ. And again, these are Jesus' words. John 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now there's Jesus' two-sided promise. In the world you will have tribulation, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Skipping from the Gospel of John, we can go to the book of 1 Peter and read some of Peter's great teaching on this issue. He helps us understand why this is necessary. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 reads, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now Peter is telling us that these types of trials are coming to test us, and we need to not be surprised. He would tell us that fiery trials are coming to test us, but we need to rejoice in them so that when God responds to our prayers, when God responds to our needs, when His glory is revealed, we will be in a place where we can say, thank you, Lord, for everything that you have done. The psalmist understood that. All the way back in the middle of our Bible in the 119th Psalm, if you want to join me there, you'll hear his words. Psalm 119, verse 71 and 72. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The psalmist would actually say it was good for me. It was good for me that I faced trials. It was good for me that I faced tribulation. It was good for me that I faced trouble in my faith. Because that's how we learn about God. That's how we discover who He really is and how much He loves us. Trials are designed for your good, not for your harm. So you have to be ready for them. James gives us a deeper teaching of that back in James chapter 1. Hopefully your finger's there and you can just flip back to it. We read again, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You can take out that word testing and get a deeper understanding of this by replacing it with an accurate word, approval, the approval of your faith. So it would read like this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the approval of your faith produces steadfastness. Sometimes the purpose of trials is just the approval of our faith. It is the testing of our faith. 
the testing of the relationship that we have with God. If we never placed our faith or allowed our faith to be placed under a microscope, we would never know what's there. We would never know how strong it is. Or, on the other side of that argument, how weak it is. Our faith will never be approved if it is never tested. It will never be approved if it never comes under trial. So it is necessary for that to happen. It is necessary for us to walk through difficult times. The old preacher Charles Spurgeon would say it this way, trials are there to show us who we really are. They dig up the dirt of our life so that we can see what's underneath it. That's pretty good. Trials dig up the dirt of our life so that we can see what's underneath it. You can take a look at your roots. You can take a look at your faith. You can take a look at the foundation that you stand on. Without trials, it's impossible to do that. It's the approval of our faith. So that God can look back at us and say, hey, you you did it. You did it. James uses that word steadfastness. These trials are bringing about not only the approval of our faith, but a steadfastness within us. That's a staying power. There are other translations of the Bible that would use words like perseverance or endurance. The English Standard Version uses the word steadfastness. It's staying power. Do I have the ability in the face of immense trials to stay with God? To hang with God? To not walk away when I get tested and tried, but rather to remain. That's what the steadfastness is. As we understand that, it allows us to understand that God is looking for certain things within our life when we are tested. Now, interestingly enough, so is the enemy. So is Satan. They're looking for two different things. God is looking for gold. Join me again in the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. In fact, he's not only looking for gold, he is looking for something more precious than gold. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you come under test, and those tests are given to you by God, He is looking to reveal something within you more precious than gold. That's, that's a pretty good treasure. It really is. Last night after I had laid down in bed, I grabbed my phone and was just scrolling through some different things, and I clicked on Facebook and, and was scrolling through some posts there when I came across this one. This was just last night at, I don't know, Beth, I sent this to you at 1045 or something like that. 1045 last night, this shows up on my wall on Facebook. It comes from one of the preachers that I grew up with at Westlink Christian Church, Wichita, Kansas. His name is Larry Wren, and he wrote this. People are most open to Jesus transforming them when life is very 
difficult. Now, I I found that to be really intriguing, that today I'm preaching the issue of trials, and Larry comes off with this out-of-the-blue post on his Facebook page telling us that it all begins even in trials for a number of people. They are most open to Jesus when their life is difficult. That's true in salvation, and it is true in sanctification. As we continue growing with the Lord, a true Christian's heart is most open to Him when they are in difficult situations. That's where prayer is the strongest. That's where our seeking out answers in the Bible is at its best when things are difficult. The Lord is looking for something within us more precious than gold. So sometimes He gives us trials to find that. Not only so that He can see it, but so we can too so that we can see something more precious than gold. But flip the nickel over. Our enemy, the devil, is looking for something totally different. I want to take you to the Gospel of Luke. If you'll turn there with me to chapter 8, I'm going to show you one of the parables of Jesus. And as you're turning, let me say this. This is why it's so important for you to have a Bible with you here this morning. I want everybody to take a look at this with your own eyes. In the world of the parables... This one may very well be the most important. It is certainly the most personal. If you cannot find yourself in this parable, you are not looking hard enough. If you cannot find yourself in this parable, it may be because you don't want to. If there is any one parable that we need to understand, the deep teaching of Jesus that we need to understand, this is it. And if you can't understand this one, It might be a faith issue. Here we go. Verse 4 of chapter 8, Gospel of Luke. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him. Let me stop there for just a second. Jesus waited until a huge crowd was with him. This teaching was not just reserved for the disciples. It was not reserved for just a few people. Jesus wanted a crowd of people in front of him before he shared this. There's a reason. He said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now you may say, I'm not sure what to do with that. That's a parable of Jesus and I I can't honestly say I understand it. Well, you're in good company. The disciples asked for a little clarification too. Listen to the clarification. Verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for the good soil, 
They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And do you see why you can find yourself in that parable? Anyone can. Everyone is in that parable in one of the four dimensions. Every person is in there somewhere. But at the heart of this is we are looking at who Satan is and what he is looking for inside of us. We can see exactly what that is. Inasmuch as God is looking for something more precious than gold through trials, what Satan wants to find is nothing but solid rock. That's it. Because once the seed of God's Word, once the seed of God's Spirit is scattered on solid rock, the bird, which is Satan, can come along and pick it up one at a time, eating the seeds one at a time, until there is absolutely nothing left. He's looking for rock. That's what he wants to see in your life. Solid rock. That's it. God's looking for something more precious than gold. Satan is looking for worthless rock. Because that's an easy place for him to pick away your faith. When the trials come and the faith is scattered on that rock, boy, he's happy. He's happy. Because remember this, trials that come from God are designed to draw you near to him. Trials that come from the enemy, from the devil, are designed to pull you away from God. So he's looking for rock. And when he finds it, a lot of seed gets scattered there. A lot of trials come. A lot of tribulations come. It's just a matter of what we expose. Now, all of that sounds really good. It really does. It just sounds wonderful. Okay, I want God to find something more precious than gold in my life. But when we take that idea, even James's idea of counting it all joy because we know that God is doing something in our life, we're excited about that even as we face difficult times. It's... it's Easy to listen to in theory. But when we lay the idea over real, real world problems, it becomes a, a little more difficult. Like this. If you were to sit down and talk with the young couple that had just miscarried their third baby and ask them whether there was gold or rock visible right now, they may very well tell you neither. The only thing that we can see in our faith right here, right now in this moment is cold. That is all we have. There is no gold. There is coal. We are so upset with God. We are so distant from God. We are so angry with God that that is all we have. Or maybe if you're sitting down talking to the man who just lost his job and is going to have to go home and tell his wife that he's unemployed and there is no hope on the horizon and he knows that the bills are mounting at at home and there's no way to pay those and he isn't sure what he's going to do, if you were to ask him whether it is gold or rock that is visible within him right now, which one is rising to the top, he would tell you neither. It's anger and disappointment that is rising within me. Or maybe you sit and visit with the man who just lost his wife to an affair and you ask him what's visible. You've been a long-time Christian. You've been a long-time servant in the Lord and this is what's going on in your life right now. Is it gold or is it rock? What are you finding? And he sits and thinks and, and reflects deep within his heart and he said, nothing like that. I write at this particular moment, I'm wondering if there was ever gold in my life because it only feels like pyrite. Fool's gold. That seems like the only thing I've built my faith on because how could this happen? How could this take place? The same exact thing could happen if you were to talk with the lady who just came back from the doctor and found out that the cancer had returned. 
And the doctor said to her, there's not much that we can do. It doesn't look like there are any treatments that are available for you. So we don't know that there are any options. Sit down and visit with her about her faith and she would tell you, right now, all I know is that the seeds of God's Word have been scattered on rock and the birds are circling above me. I don't believe I'm standing on anything solid. The same thing could happen if you were talking to a businessman and you ask him about his business and he said, things aren't going very well. Thanks for asking, but they're just not going very well right now at all. I'm not sure there's any gold in my life anywhere. Anywhere. You see, when real world problems are laid over this idea, they become really personal. They become really practical and they become really teachable. And this wonderful idea that James puts forward, we want to sidestep it. We want to get around it, but we have to go through it in order to get to the place that God wants us to be. Job had to do that. Each of those scenarios that I just placed out there for you could be with some stretching and exaggeration taken, be taken right from Job's life. Job would say this after he went through some of the most difficult things anybody would ever face. Job chapter 23, verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. I like the way the NIV reads that. But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. I will come forth as gold. How do we do that? How do we do that in the face of such extreme difficulties? How do we do that? The Apostle Paul actually gives a path. Let me show it to you from Romans chapter 5 told you we were going to be standing on a lot of Scripture today. The Bible's doing the teaching, and I love that. Just five verses from the fifth chapter of Romans. You'll see how to pull this off. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only that, but we rejoice, listen, in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now there's a path for you through sufferings. It begins in what Paul refers to as the peace that we have with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And he uses this big biblical word to describe that. It's the word justification. The justification that Paul is talking about happened in your life when you believed on Christ unto salvation. That's when the justification happened. At that moment, you received peace with God. And you received peace through God. Because of what the Lord had done for you through His Son. You were justified before the Lord. Your sin was taken care of. The penalty was paid. The price was paid. It was all wiped out because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You were justified before God and peace became a part of your life. You may say, I'm, I'm looking for a specific moment where that might have happened. That's one of the many facets of what I love about baptism. For many people, baptism is that moment that we can look back on and say it was right then in that moment in that water where I experienced the justification and I experienced the peace. It was the beginning point of my walk with God. So if you have never experienced that because you've never been baptized, that's something that you need to think about. 
that's something that you need to consider. And we would love to talk to you about that moment in your spiritual life. And we can make it happen. We can make it happen today. We can make it happen tomorrow. We can make it happen whenever you're ready. We can make that happen so that you can experience that very peace. And once you do, look at what Paul says happens. It opens a floodgate of character development within all of us. Verse 2, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. At that moment where we experience the justification necessary to stand before God, character development begins to flow through us until it ends in a place of hope so that I can face anything. With God by my side, I can face anything. I can handle whatever comes because God has developed my character into this place where hope reigns. Something more precious than gold. Hope. Hope. See how that works? It's pretty cool. Now here, I want to give you one of the secrets of heaven. And this is, this is amazing. This is a secret of heaven. If you are watching Netflix late at night, this could be its own series, Secrets of Heaven. And this is just one of them. Here it is. Take a look. Verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Follow that word picture. In this, this is incredible. God's love has been poured into our hearts, into the heart of every believer. It's like pouring oil into a transfer case. The Holy Spirit at the moment of justification when you become a believer is standing there with this giant pitcher. Maybe it's a bucket. Maybe it's a 55-gallon drum. Whatever it is, pouring God's love into your heart, filling your heart with God's love and all of that character development that ends in hope. And in the process of that, grace is poured into your heart and everything that you need, everything that you need, listen, everything that you need is there because the Spirit poured it into you. So you can face any trial. No matter what it is, you can face any trial. That is great news. That is incredible news right out of the book of Romans. That's the path through. It begins with the peace that we receive from God in salvation. That happens because of the justification that Jesus brought about. And then there's this character development that takes us all the way through steadfastness, the staying power that is necessary to land in a place of hope where we stand before God with something more precious than gold, more valuable than gold. Bring on the trials, God, because that's what I want you to see. Most of us do not pray prayers like that. But when the trials come... We can count them as joy because God's doing something. God is doing something. I just have to wait and see what it is. God is doing something. That's how we count it as joy. God is doing something. Last week I told you that the book of James is one of the most practical books in all of the Bible. And as we spend these weeks in this practical book, I want to bring out some things that are very, very applicable for you. I would call them the how-to section of each message. So as we wrap all of this together, I want to give you the how-tos 
for facing trials, for facing struggles and challenges in your faith so that gold will be what's visible. Not rock, but gold. And I'm going to leave you with just six of them this morning. Six ways to face trials through your faith. Here they are. Number one, and I'll give you the scripture that backs them up. Expect suffering and trials. We've already read John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have absolutely no idea how many times through the years I have sat down with people that are facing some of the most difficult times of their life and they make a statement like this. I never saw this coming. I don't know how this happened. Danny, have you ever had that conversation with people where they've said to you, I I never saw this coming? You've heard that. Liz, have you heard that? I've never saw this coming. Well, folks, we need to have our eyes open. Trials are going to come. And so when you're expecting them, they won't take you by surprise. Now, the actual trial itself may rock your world just a little bit, but the fact that it's there will not take you by surprise. wonderful preacher named Gordon MacDonald years ago when he was facing some of the most difficult times of his life, and they were difficult, made this statement. When we seek to draw closer to the Lord, we need to expect, we need to expect that all hell will break loose in our lives. It's pretty true. The gates of hell will be open and the enemy is going to fling everything that he can our direction. So expect it and you won't be taken by surprise. Number two, rely on the power of God's word. This comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 12 and 17. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There you go. We use the Word of God as a sword in the midst of battles. You rely on what is contained in this book. Remember what Wesley said, Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Because it will give me what I need to get through whatever it is I face. So you rely on the power of God's Word. Number three, make prayer a priority in your life. This comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Tucked away right in the middle of it, you pray without ceasing, because prayer is the greatest power that you're ever going to have in the midst of whatever trial it is that you're facing, however it is that you're suffering. Prayer is the greatest tool, the greatest weapon you will ever have. Couple it with the Word of God and you'll find the sustaining power that you've been looking for. Number four, be committed to one another through the church. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the great powers of the church, one of the great blessings of the church is the encouragement of the brethren. When we come together, we have the great joy of encouraging one another, building one another up. That may come from simply asking, how was your day or how was your week? Or it may come through sitting down and having a deep, heartfelt conversation with people. We have at least two ministries in this church, at least two, 
that are designed for that very reason. Our greeters, the people that greet you when you're coming in, and our decision counselors, those that go back into the prayer room with you. Our welcome center is designed the same way. So is the information desk to encourage people to build one another up so that you find a friendly face. But imagine what would happen if everybody in the church came with that idea. I'm going to encourage somebody and build them up in the Lord. That's one of the great byproducts of the church. Number five. Look for reasons to rejoice in your life. The Apostle Paul would say in Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. He had to circle back on that whole idea. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul would teach that we have to rejoice in the midst of trials. James would teach that we rejoice because of trials. At some point, it could seem like they are standing in direct contradiction to one another, but they're not. James is teaching that we rejoice because of trials simply because the Lord is doing something in our lives. It gives us this bigger picture of what God is doing. When Paul teaches to rejoice in the midst of trials, he's changing our perspective. This is how we're going to get through the trials, by simply counting up things that we have to rejoice over. So when things are are getting heavy and they're pouring down on you and the weight seems to be more than you can bear, you stop and make a rejoicing list. Paul would say it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. This is so important. Circle back on it like Paul did. When it seems like there is no light shining at the end of your tunnel, you rejoice because it changes your perspective. And so does this. Number six. Keep doing good by being other-focused. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. When you are being overrun by the struggles of life, take your eyes off yourself. Place them on someone else. Become other-focused while doing good. It'll change your whole perspective. It'll change how you see even the trials that you're facing. Become other-focused. And then you're going to be spreading the gospel. And whatever it is that you're facing will not matter nearly as much. That's how we plow through to the point where we can count it all joy and we can arrive at a place of steadfastness in the midst of trials as something more precious than gold rises in our life. And that's hope. That is hope. I'm going to give you one last passage. When things seem desperate and you have nowhere else to turn, you turn here. This is 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Paul writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And I would add, the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 
Know who you believe and trust that He can guard what has been given to you until the day that He calls you home or He returns to take His church with Him. Oh, you count it all joy as you face trials of many kinds, tribulations, because they will develop steadfastness within you. God is doing something. Just watch and pay attention.